0: Father, we come to you and are so grateful that you're on the throne, that your son is victorious over death, and Lord, our sin has been eradicated at the cross. Thank you for a relationship that we can have with you that there is no other means that would have been possible apart from Christ, and so we are grateful. Father, thank you for Community Bible Fellowship. Thank you for those that are filling in the gap, volunteering, serving, and uh, Lord, we are excited to see what you are doing. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and it is good to have you here. Thank you for coming. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, as you're doing that... uh, I. I'm not going to show you a ton of photos, and no, these are not family members. <laughs> Pictures you're looking at: the lady in the center, to the little to the right, uh, holding a teacup. They're all holding teacups. Well, anyway, uh, from the second to the to the right, her name is Mildred Cable. You may not have heard of Mildred Cable. She grew up in England, studied at the University of London, and was engaged to a fine young lad. Uh, That sounds more Scottish than English, but oh well, it works. And uh, they were both determined that God was calling them to the mission field. He had an epiphany and stated, no, I'm not going to go. I decided I don't want to do that. And he said, you need to abandon your desire to go to the mission field as well. And so wisely she dumped him. And uh, she said, no way. Uh, God has called me to the mission field, and that's where I'm going in 1901, she entered the mission filled with the lady far to the left, Eva, and then her sister, Francisca, joined them. They were known as the trio. They spent 20 years in mainline China, and then another 12 in the Gobi Desert ministering to Muslims. They were known as the teachers of righteous, or righteousness. Mildred wrote a book about living in the desert, and she makes this statement. Listen to this. This is great. The greatest crime of the desert was to know where the water was and not to tell it. (laughs) The greatest crime, I would argue, in this world, not just in the desert, is to know the living water and not share it. Paul understood that, and as he's writing to this church, and we're journeying through the book of Colossians, so if you've not been studying, or you've not been with us, this is what we're doing. We're moving verse by verse. We should be done in 2023. Uh, We're in verse 24 of chapter 1 still, after uh, this is our sixth week. Isn't that exciting? We're not even two months old yet as a church, uh, and it's just exciting to see what God is doing. But uh, Paul's laying this out for a group of believers that he's never met, and it's about the gospel and about Christ, and in verse 24, he's going to lay out what I've entitled, and we have notes today. Uh, I've had enough people badgering me for notes, so there they are today. Uh, If you don't use them, we will do something else, but hopefully this will be of help to you, for you note-takers, and there's even blanks to fill in, so we'll see how well you pay attention. Um, But um, he's going to lay out, so what I've called, the distinctives for the church, Uh, A a successful gospel-centered ministry must have the four following hallmarks, I'm going to argue, based upon the text. So let's look at chapter 1 of verse 24 and Paul's words to the church at Colossae. He says, "'Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ.'" "'I became a servant of the church.'" He's already highlighted that he's a servant to the gospel up in verse 23. "'I have become a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God or the dispensation or the plan that God has laid out, given to me for you in order to complete the word of God, that is the mystery that's been kept hidden from ages and generations, but has now been revealed to His saints.'" God wanted to make known to them the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him by instruction and in teaching all people with all wisdom, so that we may present every person mature in Christ. Toward this goal, I also labor, struggling according to His power that powerfully works in me." I'm reading from the Net Bible. If you had trouble following a little bit, that's okay. Uh, The translation of this text is is slightly difficult. In fact, verse 24 is seen as the most problematic verse of the entire book. So if this is your first time here, good for you, uh, because we're going to work through this verse. And what does it mean? Well, there's several things, right, in verse 24. What does it mean that He rejoices in the midst of suffering? And what does it mean that Christ is lacking in anything? Uh, What is this deficiency? And so we're going to unpack that. But let's pull back a bit and look again at the distinctives of the church. The first of these, which is in your notes, is our attitude. It should be one of rejoicing in suffering. This is no shocker to Paul. Do you remember the Damascus Road? What Christ said to the Apostle Paul then was Saul. He stated, remember, I I, Christ speaking to Saul, said, Will show him how much he must suffer. And, and and the Greek is here is clear. It said, It is necessary. There's no other way you, another way you could render it. This is designed that he must suffer for the sake of my name. There it is. So Paul understood that from the get-go. In fact, I would argue every believer knows to follow Christ, what do you do? You deny yourself and take up a cross. And suffering is entailed with following Jesus. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be a good soldier and you're going to suffer like a soldier. Right? If you have time today, in fact, look at 2 Timothy 2 and, and identify what does that mean, suffering as a soldier. But in, in verse 24, he lays it out. It's for your sake that I'm suffering. Paul identifies suffering throughout his writings. It was key to the apostolic ministry. It, it's, it's what tied him into the proclamation of the gospel. He says, so, yes, but the, the odd thing here is to say for you. He's never met these folks, right? So how how can you say you're, you're suffering for the church at Colossae? Well, I think most scholars are arguing th- the Colossae church believers are kind of a subset of all of the church in which Paul is suffering for. Indirectly, they have benefited from Paul's ministry because Paul ministered in Ephesus, and most likely that's where Epaphras, who's mentioned here in Colossians uh, chapter 4, for instance, even in chapter 1, Epaphras, who was the founder of this church, uh, learned of the gospel from Paul's ministry directly. So, indirectly, they are affiliated But but Paul, how can you say, I rejoice? That's right. It's like saying, I rejoice in eating Brussels sprouts. I don't, right? So what's the value of suffering? And and I've just listed a few for you this morning that you can uh, hang on your beak and run with. But the first of these is suffering is an opportunity to develop a deeper relationship with God, right? Some of you are nodding your heads. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's walking through the valleys, and you experience God's presence like you've never experienced. You've seen His provisions like you've never seen it before. There's been some times in us as a family that where we have seen God's ability to allow us to have a deeper relationship with Him because of the things we've experienced. And you know, may we not forget those times. And suffering affords that opportunity. You say, well, I don't want to suffer. <laughs> Uh, but that's, that's part of this process of, of God wooing us closer to Him, depending on Him. Secondly, suffering increases our awareness. This follows deeply with the first of our dependence on the Lord. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read a text to you. It's in Second Corinthians, which is Paul's most, probably his most autobiographical letter. In 2 Corinthians, we realize, you know what? Paul did struggle. He wasn't a super saint like he might first appear when you read Galatians. But he, he pins these words in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Listen to what he states. He says, therefore, so that I would not become arrogant, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. In scholars debate, what is that? Was that a uh, eyesight? We d- we don't know. I think it's the text is actually vague intentionally so that we can relate uh, to Paul. He says, you know, a messenger of Satan tried to trouble me so that I could not so I wouldn't become arrogant. I asked the Lord three times and they depart, but he said, The Lord said to me, My grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul can rejoice in suffering because it's through that suffering that he learns greater dependence on God, a deeper relationship with him. Here's a third, and I've I have suffering is, you might want to replace that with can be but suffering can be a pathway to maturity can't it not always <laughs> but it can be and should be and you know no pain no gain you know the line right fourth in your notes is suffering unites us with others who are suffering establishing true fellowship and a greater understanding of how to minister second corinthians 1 says if we are afflicted it is for your comfort and salvation If we are comforted, it's for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken for we know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Walking through the valleys for the cause of Christ and experiencing those deep ravines allows us to minister to those who are doing the same, right? Some of you have Walked deep waters for the cause of Christ, it's, it's cost relationships in the home. It may have cost a relationship at, at work for you kids out there at school. But this allows you then to minister to others who are in the same boat. And, and suffering allows us to do that. And that's what Paul's highlighting there in 2 Corinthians. Suffering also provides opportunities to glorify God, doesn't it? Do you remember the line in Hebrews 11? it said about Abel through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Isn't that interesting? Even in the midst of the suffering, he still is proclaiming truth. And, and Paul rejoiced in his suffering. He said, just like those in Acts 5 earlier on, that they considered it worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. I have some neighbor friends, they are Coptic Christian believers, and uh, the first time I met them I said, you know, I'm so sorry you as Coptic believers have suffered so much by the evil one. And he said, oh, don't you dare say you're sorry for us. It is a joy that we as a people can suffer for Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. I rejoice in my... He's not a masochist. (laughs) He would rather not go down this road, but he understands the great benefit. And finally, suffering provides a reward and a blessing. Recently, this past week, we had our piano tuned. I won't tell you how long it was. April, you'll die. But it had been a while. And the piano tuner, he he was talking about the strings. He said, you realize there's 160 to 200 pounds of tension each string? A total of almost 30 tons of tension in a piano. That's why they got that brass plate, because wood would never work. I said, that's amazing. I said, why is that? He said, well, it's very clear. Because the more tension on the string, it gives greater volume, it helps with the tone, and it even keeps stabling of the pitch. That tension is needed. (laughs) I think Paul would tell us, as followers of Christ, that tension is good. The suffering is good because it keeps us on our knees, it keeps us dependent, it keeps us in a, growing in a deeper relationship, it helps us in the path of maturity, it allows us to minister better to others, and ultimately the blessings that come, right? Think of the Sermon on the Mount and what Christ's Word said to those that are suffering. Go back to verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I've got that, Paul, but it's the next phrase that creates great consternation among theologians. What does he mean that I am filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Well, there are a few views, and I'll give you three major views, and then I'll tell you the one I land on. One of those is is argued that Christ's sufferings we incomplete, that we as Christians, Christ followers, come alongside and help fill them up. <laughs> I see a couple of you nodding your head no. Yeah, th- there's real problems with that because Jesus said on the cross, it is what? Finished. He did it. It's taken care of. John 1 says, behold, the Lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world. We're, we're not part of that equation. Thank goodness. Oh, we couldn't have done it. We're, we're sinful creatures. So, that view just doesn't wash. Another is that these are what Paul's referring to are the messianic woes, those sufferings that will come that will usher in the eternal age. And there are many scholars who argue this. I'm not going to lose sleep over that view, but it doesn't seem to fit the immediate context. And so, a view that I'm going to argue here is that the afflictions of Christ are those sufferings experienced by those who are united with Him. In other words, there's a bit of a mystical fellowship with Christ. We are in Christ. We experience what He has experienced because we are identifying with Him. Now, let me give you a text to support this. John 15. If you would, please turn there. John 15. This is part of the upper room. Discourse. This is the, the last meeting Jesus has with, officially with His, His disciples. And in John 15, 18... Jesus states, if the world hates you, and it's very clear in the Greek, and they will, be aware that it has hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world will love you as its own. However, because you do not belong to the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. Remember that I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's no surprise, right? It's no surprise that when they, they cuss, they use Jesus' name. They don't say, oh, Buddha. <laughs> the world hates the Savior. That's what Christ stated in John 15. It's red letters, right? It, it, this is what he has stated. And, and those who follow after Christ will also suffer, and so, I believe what Paul is stating to the church at Colossae is, is I'm, I'm resuming, I'm identifying with and fulfilling those sufferings that he st- stated that would come as Christ followers. It shouldn't surprise us, right? And I think that's what he's highlighting here. As followers of Jesus, we take our turn in suffering. You're going, wow, what a downer of a sermon. This is just real exciting. <laughs> But don't miss what Paul just stated about rejoicing and suffering. Don't miss it. And it, one of the hallmarks, one of this distinctiveness of the church, as Paul, I think, is laying out here, is our, is our attitude, and it needs to be one of rejoicing in suffering. Secondly, I think our mission is stated, and Paul highlights it, it's serving the church. Notice, he, Paul mentions this in verse 25, I've become a servant of the church according to, as he mentions, God's plan. And then he lays out two important points, and if you're filling in blanks, the first of these, it's rooted in the Word of God. Notice what he states. Paul says, given to me for you in order to complete, in verse 25, the Word of God. Completing it, fulfilling it, not simply that he's just preaching it but when it's dynamically and effectively proclaimed in the power of the Spirit through the Word. You can't do that unless you're certain of this, right? In fact, I'd argue you can't suffer if you don't believe this, right? You start pulling out my toenails, I'll probably, you know, uh, well, maybe not. <laughs> you know, you have to be certain of these things. Thomas Watson, a Puritan author, one of my favorites who wrote all things for good states let us then not rest in skepticism or doubts but labor to come to a certainty in the things of religion as that martyr woman said i cannot dispute christ or for christ but i can burn for christ god knows whether we may be called forth to be witnesses to his truth therefore concerns us to be well grounded and confirmed in it that's why paul says listen what I'm doing, it's rooted in the Word of God. I, it's here that I've anchored this. And so Watson says, if we are doubting Christians, we shall be wavering Christians. I think one of Satan's greatest tools today is postmodernity or post postmodernity, where we, we we downplay the certainty of the knowability of the text, right? I mean, think about it. In the early 1900s, it was, well, it, it isn't all... Inspired by God. Then we weren't sure about whether it's truly without error, so we attacked the inerrancy. Now it's on the knowability. Uh, I know. (laughs) Uh, My doctor father, my advisor back in Aberdeen, she'd say, well, yeah, you know, I don't question John wrote this, but you, you really can't assume you know it. I mean, that's crazy. So now we've moved the target a bit, but it, it still goes back to Genesis. What does Satan try to do? Undermine the Word of God. If he can have us doubt the Word of God, then that just opens Pandora's box. And Paul says, no, our mission is serving the church, and it's rooted in the Word, and I love this. Notice what he states here. Uh, it's about this this mystery. Now, this isn't, uh, you know, do-do-do-do-do. This isn't Rod Sterling, all right, that we're dealing with. Uh, the, The term is something that speaks of something concrete that has been revealed by divine measure. In fact, I would argue the term stems from the book of Daniel where it's used to denote an astrological mystery, that is, a concealed, divine, ordained future event that has been disclosed and interpreted by God alone. What is the mystery? Well, look what the text says. It links it right for the sake of the body, the church, the church according to the stewardship he states. And this mystery has been kept hidden in generations ago. It's a new program, distinct from the promises made to the Israelites in the Old Testament. I would argue he's not done with the Israelites, but we've been grafted in, and the mystery is that today God is uniting Jews and Gentiles in the church. It was now revealed through Christ's body, who suffered and died on the cross and rose again. And now Gentiles can be brought in. Not just so that we can be saved, but that we can have communion with God's people, the Jews. And and this is what he's highlighting here. So it's it's rooted in the word of God. That's why I proclaim this. This is why I'm willing to suffer for it, Paul states. And notice, he says in verse 27, it's not only rooted in the Word of God, it's focused on, and I love this, Christ. He says, God wanted to make known to them the glorious, who's them? The Gentiles, right? The glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love it. Christ is this hope of glory. It's, it's used in Romans 5, too, that this is the grace of, of God, that is our hope. Not that just that he was preached, but that he is preeminent, he he evades every fiber of our being. Paul preached Christ, not a system. (laughs) We need pastors who serve as servants of Christ, shepherds. We do not need a master of liturgical ceremonies. (laughs) We don't need a civic leader champion some latest issue, a professor pontificating, or religious entertainer. We need men preaching Christ alone. We need the church to be focused solely on Christ. Yes, I know. I, you know, I've been reading the biography of Martin Lloyd Jones. He was a, a great preacher from England uh, in the 1900s. He he pastored through World War II, and uh, at Westminster. This this biography is a two volume by Ian Murray, and. This week I was reading and it just, it it went and it just grabbed me by the throat. Listen to what J.I. Packard, or J.I. Packard, what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones states. They were close friends, by the way. He states, Christianity is not a scheme of morality nor a plan for social and political change. And organizations which propose improvements along such lines are only tinkering with the problems. We may be better men, but before we can face God, we must be new men. All by nature are dead in sin, and to all men equally, salvation can only come as a gift of God. Paul did not preach a system. He preached Christ, in Christ alone. And may that be the the pulse of this church as we move forward. May we not lose sight of that And my wife, I've given her a two-by-four to hit me upside the head and along with the elders. um, We need to be having a mission that is serving the church, which is anchored in the Word and focused on Christ. Well, we got more points to give. And the third of those is our purpose for ministry, and that is discipling people. Paul gives fourth. Subpoints here. Look what he says in verse 28. We proclaim. That, is, that term is is seldom used in the New Testament. It's reserved in Acts and used of Paul, and it has strong missionary overtones. In other words, they're to be giving out the gospel is the idea of proclamation. And notice what he says in instruction and teaching, literally admonition and instruction. What's the great commandment for the church? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. It's not go into the world. It's make. It's the only imperative in the Greek. Go make make disciples. That's what we're called to do. And notice it's all-inclusive. Notice what he states, of all people. In fact, this English translation doesn't bring it out, but the, t- the phrase every person is used three times in this verse alone. Every person. There's no spiritual elite here. <laughs> they're, they're, we don't target those we, we like or who might have listening ears. We are to instruct and teach all people. And then he says we are to be guided by spiritual insight. We are to be doing it with all wisdom. I think he's taken a little dig at the false teachers at Colossae, because one of the things we're going to see as we move further into this book is that the church is being attacked from these who are saying, you know, this spiritual jargon stuff, you, you can take a little bit of that, but don't get carried away. And, and we have insight from the world we need to glean. And, and Paul says, oh no, <laughs> we have all wisdom from God. And then, notice, it is goal-oriented, right? So that every person might be mature. That was echoed in verse 22. Look at verse 22 and what Paul writes in, earlier in this chapter. He says, now he's reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before him. And Paul says, that's part of our role as well, to come alongside believers and to make sure they're presented as mature in Christ. In fact... Epaphras is doing the same. Look at chapter 4 of Colossians. Look at Colossians 4.12. It's highlighted here in 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a slave of Christ, greets you. He is always struggling in prayer on your behalf. Watch this. Here's the purpose. So that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That's why Paul stated earlier in chapter 1 in his greeting And part of the thanksgiving and the opening of this letter, he says, I pray that you might know the will of God. Why? So that you might live a life worthy of Him. And so, as Paul lays this out for this community, he says, listen, our purpose is discipling people. Why? So we can have a great program? (laughs) So that we can sell t-shirts or write more books? No. The text is clear, right? so that every person might be mature in Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal, right? Charles Spurgeon, is a quote we looked at the men's Bible study this past week, he said, our, our, our modus operandi, our, our, our means for what we do should be inscribing, not on tombstones, but on people's hearts. That's the legacy we want to leave, right? we want that multiplication. We want to be leaving a legacy. Well, then that's the legacy, is equipping the next generation for them to pass it on to the next generation. And Paul says, listen, I rejoice. He says, our attitude is one of rejoicing. Secondly, our mission, it's serving the church. Third, it's our purpose is discipling people. And fourth, the means, I love this, Look what Paul states in the last verse. Towards this goal, I also labor. It's where we get the term "agonize." It was used of the r- runners in the Olympics of that day to, to press forward. He says, in other words, this is a. He said, "I'm working night and day here. This is important." And I and I love that that he's involved. He understands his role, but but notice what he says according to his power. He understands. We could do X, Y, and Z. You know, the last time the acting elders here met, you know, we, we talked about all the things that we need to do, but the focus is on Christ. In fact, I don't know if I told you all this. I put together this first elder meeting, and I had all this stuff laid out and everyone's task, etc. and I thought, ooh, I got this down. Here we go. And my former colleague, Rich Blumenstock, I shot it off to him and said, hey, would you look at this? He goes, that is awful. I said, what? He goes, look at what you've done. I said, Well, oh, I thought I got all the ministries. What have I missed? He goes, ha. he goes, you have not trained them to be shepherds. That's their role. All the dewy stuff, that comes later. What you want is a group who is passionate about the Lord and then spilling over and loving one another. I said, you know what? You're right. So I chucked that thing and rewrote the whole sucker. That's what we need, right? That is an understanding. No, we have to be dependent on the Spirit. It's so easy. It reminds me of Mary and Martha. You know the scene in Luke chapter 10. <laughs> In fact, it springs from a question that was asked of Jesus earlier in the text, you know, how do we, you know, how do we get to heaven? And well, of course, Jesus being a good rabbi asked the question, well, what what do you say? And he goes, well, you love the Lord your God, you love your neighbors yourself. Good answer. So Jesus illustrates it first with the, the parable of the good Samaritan. That's how you love one another. And then, I believe the next scene in Luke chapter 10 is how to love the Lord your God with all your heart because we meet Mary and Martha. Martha is the hostess with the mostest. She's got it going on in the kitchen. She's got it all arranged. And where's, where's, where's Mary at the feet of Jesus? And Martha's all concerned. What she's doing is great. Hospitality, good job. We need the pot roast. That's wonderful. No bacon. That's good. But she missed it. And Jesus said, Martha, you need to be in tune with the Spirit. You need to be basking at God's feet and allowing Him to work in and through you. And Paul says, I labor, yes, hands down. But he says, I do it by His power and the power that works in me. Look at verse 11. This is not foreign to already what he's wrote to the church at Colossae. In verse 11, Paul writes being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the display of all patience and steadfast, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. What He is praying for those saints, He's living out in His own life, isn't He? This is what He's desiring. This is where effective ministry comes into play. And Jude chapter 20 tells us that the Spirit is there to guide and to empower us. It's what teaches us the Word, show us the will of God, keeps us in tune with the things of the Lord, is the power of the Spirit. Mildred Cable, remember that lady that you saw just earlier? She made another statement, a very powerful one. God provides the men and women needed for each generation. In 1901 it was eva francisca and mildred names that i suspect no one in this room has ever heard of but a legacy they left in china in fact for 20 years they served in the mainland they left because they said our work is done the nationals are now leading the church we move forward that's what we need we need a generation and young people. I speak to you, but also to you, senior citizens. We need a group of people who understand our attitude is to rejoice in suffering. Our mission is to serve the church. Our purpose is to disciple people, and our means is through the power of the Spirit. Father, this is a tall order. <laughs> To be honest, the idea of suffering, the idea of having to labor in your work, training people, serving, it's daunting, it's overwhelming. And I'm reminded of my friend from years ago, Howard Hendricks, used to say, if you want an effective ministry, it has a high price tag. And he's correct. That's what Paul's laying out here. But oh, it's worth every penny. Lord, raise up a group of people like Mildred Cable who understand that it's a crime not to share where the water is located. Thank you for the living water, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we find a quenching of spiritual thirst. It's why the woman in John 4 left the water pill and went and told a group of people back at town, this can't be, can it? And yes, it is. Thank you, O oh Father, in Jesus' name.